You know, the, uh, the third Sunday of Advent is unique in that it has a pink candle. And uh, that, that f- funny story behind that, I, I won't give you the long, long version of it, but uh, Advent was a very, in Europe especially, you know, it's winter, it's cold, it's dark, they don't have bright lights, and, and uh, this Advent, which is supposed to be an increasingly joyful, anticipatory time, was such a dark time of year, and, they, and some of the church leaders were sitting around, and they said, well, how do we brighten this up a little bit? And somebody came up, no lie, somebody came up with the idea of, Let's make one of the candles pink. Won't that be fun? And they did, and it's stuck ever since. So the uh, third candle is just to remind us in the midst of this, the unexpected, the unexpected joy that is coming upon the world. There's a, the uh, passage that I want to uh, share with us this morning. It, it kind of ties in some of with what the uh, kids were singing there at the end. They sang, all is well. All is well. The Savior is born, right? All is well. But it's not all well yet. But we know that it will be well. We know that the Savior who was born, the the Son of God who came, is, is coming again. And that's Advent. That's the Advent, the coming. That's what we anticipate. That's what we wait for. And so we've been, as we've been moving toward the, a, a series in the Gospel of Matthew, Advent all the way around to Easter, that we've had a few other, the Old Testament, bigger picture themes moving toward that, laying the foundation that Matthew is going to start from because in that day in the first century. At that time, there was, out of that prophetic hope, out of the predictions, out of God's promises, there was a a rising and growing and sharpening, coming into focus expectation. The Messiah is coming. It, It should be any time now. And there was this growing expectation so that some, like Anna and Simeon, were not surprised when the Messiah himself was presented. In the midst of that anticipation, we see that, that shift, that shift from uh, the, the gloom, the trouble that has been. Think of Israel under a Roman oppression and uh, think of, in, in the Old Testament, the, the captivities, the time of chastening, the, the troubles that were upon the nation. And then all of a sudden, there's a, there's a turning, looking ahead into the future towards joy. That theme is picked up. In fact, the, the, uh, the, the shift from Old Testament to New Testament is picked up by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is an interesting book. Isaiah has 66 chapters, just like in the Bible. There are 66 books of the Bible. Not only that, but Isaiah, after chapter 39, at chapter 40, the, the, the theme changes so dramatically that those that don't understand what's going on, uh, scholars in the early, early 1900s came up with the idea these are two different prophets. The theme so changes that there must be a first Isaiah and a second Isaiah. Because at Isaiah 40, something has changed about the message. And it's interesting because there's 39 books of the Old Testament, like those first 39 chapters, and then you come to the, come to the Gospel of Matthew, and everything changes. There is a new hope. There's a fulfillment of promise. Promises you find echoed earlier back in Isaiah. But Isaiah chapter 40, like in the Gospels, all of a sudden the theme and the mood changes to one of hope.
So we're going we're gonna, to uh, turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 40. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find us on page 599. Isaiah chapter 40. While you're turning there, I'll also mention that, yes, we will be starting Matthew next week. So if, you're, if you um, join or are interested in joining our men's study on Monday morning that looks toward that, that new message each week, we study it in advance together, then we'll be starting Matthew tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. here in my, in my office. So Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to start with the first five verses, but I want you to imagine for a moment there. I want you to imagine that, we're, that Isaiah is standing on the Mount of Olives, okay? In this, for this chapter, Isaiah is standing on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking toward Jerusalem, and then he seems to turn and look toward the wilderness. So first, he's on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking west over the city, not unlike what Jesus would do later. As Jesus from Bethany approaches Jerusalem, he comes to the top of the Mount of Olives, and he looks and he sees the city, and he weeps over the city. Isaiah stands there, and he's speaking to the city. There's a theme of Jerusalem that's going to come out in this chapter. There's a theme of going up to a high place to make an important pronouncement, like the Mount of Olives. There's, there's mention of the wilderness, and so I think that's where Isaiah is standing. He looks toward Jerusalem, and then he turns also and he looks out toward the wilderness. Let's look at the other picture. If you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you turned around and looked the other direction, this is what you'd see. Now there's a little more cities there, but if you look to the hills beyond, those hills get more and more barren. And it's, and it's just this indulating, I think that's how you say, where the hills just up and down. It's just a, a, a wilderness of barren hills and valleys. And that imagery is going to come up in Isaiah's words here in Isaiah 40. So with that in mind, let's turn to Isaiah 40. Hope you've had a chance to find it. I'm going to read, first of all, the first five verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare or her trouble is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert, the wilderness, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground of that hilly Judean wilderness shall become level, and the, in the rough places shall become a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's three things that God says in comfort to his people, and all three of these are in comfort to his people. What does he have to say to them? The first thing that he has to say is her warfare or their bondage and servitude. Is ended. Now, initially, there's a, this is a deliverance from Babylon. This is the return back, but it's bigger than that. And in the message of Messiah, it's going to be much greater than that, that our bondage, our warfare, our oppression, it's, it's, it's not unlike the return out of Babylon is not unlike the exodus from Egypt. The same bondage was over, and God's people were led out free to live a new life in worship following him. Her warfare is ended. Her bondage is ended. Her servitude is ended. Peace is here. 
We can live new. Not only, in the, not only in the future, we can live new now that God has given us as Christians, as followers of Christ, those who know him, God has given us a, a, a new life to live, walking with him, walking with the risen and the living Savior. I mentioned prayer requests earlier, and I urge you to do that. One of the things that we don't as Christians today, we don't lean on one another in prayer enough. And I say lean on one another, we really, we, we through one another, lean on God together in prayer. But there's something about not only praying yourself, but others praying with you and for you. And I urge you to take advantage of that. Whether it's using those cards and letting elders and shepherds here in the church be praying for you, or whether it's grabbing hold of somebody, would you pray for me? Or putting your arm on somebody else's shoulder. Can I pray for you? What's going on? What's, what's, what, what's difficult? Or, or what, where are you, what are you rejoicing in this week? But lifting up one another in prayer, walking together, because we, we can live in a spiritual victory. In fact, I'm, I'm excited already. I'm looking past Matthew. I'm looking ahead to a, to a, to a spiritual warfare series that I want to do after Matthew. That in light of the, of the risen and coming king, how is it that his people can live and walk and serve and evangelize in victory. Our warfare is ended. Our bondage, our servitude to the enemy is over. Why? Because her iniquity is pardoned, forgiven. The state of guilt from sin or misdeeds or any consequential punishment, it's over. We easily carry around old, old guilt, don't we? You have this voice, you have this script that plays in your head, that rehearses old sin. It replays yesterday and tells you that you're not worthy. Or maybe it's you telling yourself that you're not worthy. Either way, what we need to do is we need to answer that. We need to speak directly. I, I used to think Martin Luther was a little off at times. Just a little wild or crazy. Now, he, he would actually have these verbal confrontations with the enemy. And he would answer these doubts in his head. He would answer with his voice. And, but what he would do is he would preach the gospel to himself. We need to do that before we ever tell to anybody else to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind yourself that you are fully accepted in the beloved. That thing, when you think of your sin, when you think of your, your misdeed, when you think of the wrong that you have done, it is forgiven. It is pardoned. Your iniquity, to use Isaiah's word, your iniquity is pardoned. Your sin is covered. It is put away as far as the east is from the west. And we need to wake up in the morning. And when we begin our day in prayer, thank the Lord for that. And in thanking him for that, we are rightly worshiping him. And we are telling ourselves again the gospel that we desperately need to hear. My, my bondage is over. I don't have to serve the old master anymore because my sin is forgiven. That's the basis of it. My sin is forgiven, and he says she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. I've read that for years, and I thought it was something like this. I thought it was something like the punishment in Babylon has been enough. God has done worse to them. God has done double to them what they did to him. Not at all. That's just not true. And if that were true, then Jesus' death wasn't needed for them. 
No, the double here, and that word double, where it's used elsewhere in Scripture, that word double is used for a double portion, a double inheritance. It's not a, um, it, it could be in Hebrew poetry, and then and, and the prophets were poets, it, it could be a parallel line, he's saying the same thing again, but it can't be that because the last line was, your sin is forgiven. Your sin is pardoned. It's not that it's paid for by you. It's been pardoned. It's been forgiven. And in the place of your sin, you have been given. In the place of all of her sins, God has given them a new standing as clean before him and his own. That's us. Think about it for a minute. Not only is your bondage to the enemy and to sin ended at the cross, not only is, is it because your sins have been forgiven and you stand with no guilt in the way between you and fellowship with God. Not only that, but you have been given a whole new standing. You have been made an heir of God. God has made you his own child. You have been given a, a double inheritance. A double inheritance was the inheritance of the firstborn. That's what belongs to Jesus. And you are in him. That's what Isaiah is saying. Jesus has stood for the nation, and Jesus has stood for you. That's what he's saying. You are an heir of God. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ because you are in him. That's where your sins are forgiven, and that's where you have received in him a double portion, a, a firstborn's inheritance, and your firstborn is Jesus. He is the firstborn in whom we are. We have his portion. You're not forgiven because you paid a price. You're forgiven because he paid a price. But because you're forgiven in Christ, because he paid a price, you have been given in Christ a new position. So because that's true, we live already toward a coming new reality. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness. As John the Baptist was waking up a spiritually slumbering people, that's what we'll find this, this verse echoed in the gospel. Matthew chapter 3, he'll refer to John, the voice crying out in the wilderness. Luke chapter 1, the same thing. And, and that voice is John waking up a slumbering people to who they are in God because of God's call upon them. To walk with Jesus. John's invitation is wake up people and walk with the Messiah into his coming kingdom. Verses 3 and 4. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. There's the invitation to prepare. That's the image John was using. It's not just a matter of somebody's going to be out in the wilderness. The, the invitation is to change that wilderness into fruitful land. You see, Israel, God's people, were the wilderness. They had been planted to be a fruitful, a, a fruitful land, bearing fruit for God, and yet they had become a barren wilderness. But Isaiah's invitation, John the Baptist's invitation to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our invitation, the king is coming, is to bear fruit now in anticipation of his coming. To, that, the, that the desert will bloom and blossom and bear much fruit and that by the Spirit of the living God within us. In the wilderness, prepare the way. Make straight in the desert. Every valley lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. Obstacles moved out of the way. Low spots strengthened and built up. And that which was wilderness in our lives as well becomes a fertile plain. 
because the glorious king is coming, the second advent when all will see. This is not his quiet coming to Bethlehem. You catch verse 5 again. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together. We're going to see that in Matthew 24. I think it's going to look something like this. If you read ahead to Matthew 24, you find that at, at, at one point in time, you compare that to Revelation, at one point in time, all the lights in the sky are turned out as if there was a big pole chain and the, and, the, and the stars are darkened and the moon is darkened and the sun is darkened and it is dark. It is so dark you can touch it. And then out there, out there through the heavens, there it is. What is that? There is this bright glow that is coming. As it gets nearer, it gets brighter and it gets bigger and it gets fuller and it's approaching the earth. But it's not suddenly in an instant. Its approach is such that as the globe spins, as the world turns over a 24-hour cycle, everybody can see the Son of God in all of his glory returning. Imagine it. Every eye will see him, the Scripture says. And as in, in the book of Matthew, it says, as, as, the, as the lightning shines from the east all the way to the west, that everybody sees it flashing across the sky. That's what the glory of God in Christ's return is going to be like. It, it won't be a quiet night. Off in the corner of a little village in Bethlehem. Not this time. That was that time. But when the king of glory returns, nobody will miss it. Some people are going to freak out. They're going to say, what is that? Somebody, they're going to think it's an alien invasion. They're not going to know what it is. And, and in effect, it is. God, the owner of the universe and the owner of this earth, the one who made it, has become, for all practical purposes, among humanity, he's become a stranger to us. And yet, he's coming. He's coming to rightfully claim what is his, and that includes you. That includes you in Christ. He is coming. Let us get ready for that new reality because the glorious king is coming. What does it mean to get ready for that new reality? Look at verse 6. Read verses 6, 7, and 8. Don't be distracted by the temporary present. In his coming, don't be distracted by the temporary present. Let's see if we can find that in verses 6, 7, and 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, well, what should I cry? What should I say? All flesh is grass. And all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. To cry out, Isaiah has become a crier. He's become a proclaimer. He's telling anybody and everybody. He's declaring a reality. He's proclaiming truth. It's interesting in verse 6, the ESV translates as beauty. That word, uh, all flesh is as grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. That's a strange translation, trying to, trying to stay with the image, but God has done something, again, very interesting with the word. It's, just, it's the word chesed that is normally referred to God's loving, covenantal faithfulness. So what if we talked about the, the beauty of the grass, or the grass is humanity, and so the faithfulness of humanity? Interesting that that is... is, is toyed with it, with the word beauty. But what if we just put that word right back in there? The devoted faithfulness is like the flower of the field. You see, you could think of it in terms of our physical beauty. 
is fading. And I realized the other day, I was saying to Julie, I'm Grandpa Carlson now. <laughs> when did that happen? I remember when I was little, like one of these. I remember when I was little, and I remember Grandpa Carlson. And Grandpa Carlson, when I was little, Grandpa Carlson was old. <laughs> How did I become Grandpa Carlson? When did that sneak up on me? We could think of that in terms of all of us are fading. All of us are fading, fading glory. We can think of it in those terms, and that would be true because this mortality is fading. But there's something deeper here, I think, that we don't want to miss, and that is our faithfulness. Even as God's people's faithfulness here, demonstrated in Israel, it faded, it passed, and they went their own way, and they did their own things. They were distracted by the temporary present. And you see, that is contrasted the fading faithfulness of humanity is contrasted at the end of the section. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word, the faithfulness of God, endures forever. You see the contrast? We are kept not by ourselves, not by our best efforts, not by our faithfulness. We are kept by him. We are kept by God's promise. We are kept by God's faithfulness to us not by our own faithfulness. Our future is not in the fading glory of the flesh. Faded glory is not your destiny. It's a brand at Walmart, okay? Faded glory is not our destiny. Our future is secured by the word, by the promise of God that stands forever. Humanity is not able to endure on our own. Stephen Hawking says he gives us a thousand years. That's it. I'm glad it's not up to Stephen Hawking's. Stephen Hawking is a, is a great example of the, of, the, of the problem with our mortality. The man has a brilliant mind, and yet he doesn't know the basics about where he came from and the Creator. He has a brilliant mind, and yet his, his, his body gave up on him years ago. The mortality of the flesh, and this mortality must put on immortality. This corruption must put on incorruption, and the beauty of Advent is at will. The King is coming. This is the temporary present. Don't be distracted, folks, by the temporary present. There's a lot that goes on this time of year that distracts us away from what Christmas really is, right? That's why I went down that whole list of these are things that we do together as a church this time of year. It's good to remember that because we can easily get discouraged in ourselves thinking, oh, Christmas has become everything that it's not. No, not so much. Not so much. You're, you've got a lot of it right. Don't get distracted by the temporary present. Instead, satisfy your soul in the coming king. Look at verses 9 to 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his... Oops, I skipped a verse. Verse 9. Get you up to your high mountain. There's our Mount of Olives again. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Behold, your Lord God comes. Why? Why fear not? Why? Don't be afraid. Look. The Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Look, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Don't be distracted by the temporary present. And what does Isaiah give us instead of this temporary distraction? Isaiah gives us a, a renewed look at who is 
your God. We're tellers of good news. We are tellers of good, good, good news, not because we're supposed to be. We are tellers of good news because look, look at who God is. Look at what God is like. Behold your God. See him as he really is. Look at, look at verse 12. Just, just to jump down, to get a little, expand the vision a little bit about who is God. Who, God says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his own hands? He has marked off the heavens with a span. That much of God's hand, a span from the thumb to the, to the, to the fingertip. That, that's how, that, for God's hands, that's all of the heavens right there. All the waters, just think about the Pacific alone, right there in the hollow of his hands. He has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man offers him advice or counsel? Whom did God consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Look, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted for as the dust on the scales. You're going to weigh something. There you are in the marketplace, and you're going to weigh out a certain amount of this or that and get the right quantity. Well, to make sure the scale is really accurate, we don't want anything to throw off the balance. Let's just dust off that scale first. Just wipe the dust off the scale, off, the, off each of the plates there before we weigh whatever it is we're going to weigh. That little bit of dust, insignificant really, compared to who God is. That's what we would be. Now think about it for a minute. If humanity, if all of humanity is as as the dust on the scales, not even that which is being weighed in the scales, but just the dust on it, if that's humanity, now think about the incarnation again. Think about Bethlehem again. Think about that manger scene again. Think about God who is all of that stepped into humanity. And the and the maker, the one who holds the waters in, his, in, the, in the hollow of his hand, the one who, who puts heavens, all the heavens in a span, became that dust for us. That's the incarnation. That's his first coming. If that's his first coming, what is the second coming going to be like? Behold your God. You take a good look at God, and that'll change your perspective on everything else. That's what Isaiah is telling us. Lift up your voice in strength. Lift up your voice in strength. You say, whose strength? Well, God's the one who enables. Look at the end of Isaiah chapter 40. God is the one who gives strength. God is the one who gives strength to the weary. It's not a matter of, well, the young and the strong are the ones who are going to carry this forward. How about the old and the weak? They're the ones God's also going to use. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, God increases strength. Even the youths would faint and be weary. And the young men, they would fall exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. You see what that's in the context of? The great and coming God who will give you strength even though you're weak, even though your faithfulness fades so easily and so quickly. Still, God will give you strength to tell his great story, to tell the person next to you, look, This is what God is like. This is what God is like. What is he like? He's coming. He is sovereign and powerful, verse 10. He is coming in might and strength, not lowly in a manger as a a humble child. And he will reward. He will vindicate your faith. Sometimes it costs you, doesn't it? 
It costs you something to believe him and to follow him. And yet the one who is coming will reward you. He will recompense. He will vindicate. He will make all that's wrong right. And it will be worth it all. And when he comes, look at the image that closes here in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Wait, that's just what he told Peter to do. Peter, tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my flock. That's just the instruction he gave us to do through Peter. That's what he's going to do. He is going to tend his flock. He is going to gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those who are with young. The coming king comes. Behold your God in the image of a shepherd. A gentle shepherd. Remember when Jesus describes a shepherd who so cared for the one that he left the 99 in a safe place over here and went out after that one who was lost and brought it back on his shoulder rejoicing that the one who was lost had been found. That's your coming king. That's our Jesus. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. That's your coming king. That's our Jesus. Jesus, the coming king, is the shepherd of Psalm 23. What is Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. The shepherd does all these things, but what is Psalm 23? Psalm 23 is a sheep bragging on his shepherd. I have got the best shepherd ever. That's your story. That's what it is that we're going to cry out. That's what you're going to stand on. Whatever mountain you stand on, that's what you're going to tell. Evangelism is simply this. I have got the best shepherd ever. Look, this is what God is like. People have all kinds of crazy ideas about what God is like. Your job and mine, out of our coming to know him, that's why we open this book. That's why we feed our souls, because there's a liar out there. There's a liar out there who whispers all kinds of crazy things in your ear about God. And you need to remind yourself on, look, this is your God. That's, that's Isaiah's language. Behold your God. Look, this is what he's really like. He's like a shepherd who loves his sheep, who tenderly cares for them, who tenderly, lovingly cares for you and strengthens you so that you can jump out into that which he has set before you. He comes in judgment and gentleness. He comes in mercy as well as in might. He comes in terror but also in tenderness. This is your God. We don't get up onto a high mountain then and tell that good news because we have to, because we're supposed to, because we better. We tell because it is the best news ever. There's nothing like this story. And as, as we drink, as we look, as we see him, we can't help but tell somebody. Remember the one father? I gotta tell somebody. I gotta tell somebody what it is that Jesus has done for me. Yeah, that's our story as well. i got to tell somebody. Satisfying our soul in Jesus. Not being distracted by the temporary present because we satisfy our soul in who he really is. That is waiting for him. That is living toward Advent. There's an essential there to essential Christianity. What, what we're called to in Advent it's described in 1 Thessalonians this way, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to what? To wait for his son from heaven, even Jesus who delivers us from the coming wrath. 
Yeah, it's been essential to the Christian experience, to faithful Christian experience ever since the beginning of the church, ever since the resurrection of Christ, to wait for his son from heaven who is coming. You're living out first century faith here. You're living out essential Christianity here in waiting for the coming king. We live out Advent. We live out the waiting for his coming by having received, first of all, God's new reality. I am free from bondage. I am fully forgiven. God has made me his own child. God has given me an inheritance in the future. Start there, verses 1 to 5. I have received God's new reality so that I'm not distracted by the temporary present. My faithfulness will not be fading because my faithfulness is rooted in God's faithful promise to me. And that's a promise worth telling others. That's a promise worth telling others that the king is coming, the only true sovereign, the one who will reward and vindicate your faith, the one who, though he is the mightiest of all, He's a tender and gentle shepherd. He cares for your soul. Caring for those who have been brooded and battered in this broken world. Behold your God. Your God. That God. Jesus. Who humbled himself. Who is the king of glory. Is coming. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Would we see him? Lord, even as our eyes are closed in prayer, Lord, would you open the eyes of our understanding that we might see you for who you really are. Lord, guard us from the lies that are so easily around us. Lord, guard us from the distractions that easily pull us us one side or another. Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy before him of having us together with him for all eternity endured the cross for us. Lord, show us yourself as you show us Jesus. Lord, let that be more than enough because we see him clearly. Lord, then would you give us an opportunity this week, Lord, to to tell somebody something about what this Advent, this Christmas, all of this really is about that they may know too the one who has saved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.